let's begin looking in God's word together. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us one more time. Um, oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, you would speak to us today. It's not about me. It's not about uh, our gathering, but it's all about you. And so speak to our hearts. Help us to understand more and more what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. I think all of us are, are familiar with uh, some of these sayings, such as, uh, you can't judge a book by its cover, or uh, you don't buy a house based on the exterior, or appearances can be deceptive, or maybe, uh, you know, don't judge a person by their words. Because this is especially true when people claim to be Christians. Um, have you ever met someone who says, I'm a Christian, but the longer you get to know them, the more you begin to say, eh, I'm not real sure about, about their walk with the Lord. Uh, we've all had that experience. And last week, we talked about the fact that we have, uh, we've got a lot of people that I call barcode Christians. They've got the label, and that's about all they've got. And what we need is if we're going to really uh, grow in our nation as a Christian uh, people, we really need uh, people who are the real deal. We need people who are like the followers of Jesus Christ in the New Testament days, the kind of followers that, that he had. And so that's what we're looking at the last week, this week, and next week. What does it mean to be a follower, a disciple uh, of Jesus Christ? Remember that a New Testament disciple is a, is a person who attaches himself or herself to a teacher so that they can know what the teacher knows, so they can do what the teacher does, so they can imitate the teacher, and so that they can begin to lead others to attach themselves to that teacher as well. Our problem is that I think that we've lost sight of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We, we have this idea that, you know, to be a Christian is just simply you've got to know and believe some certain facts and, and maybe show up for church once in a while, although that seems to become optional for many people who call themselves Christians, that, you know, church doesn't even play into it. But what we need, if we're really going to stem this problem, to, to really revitalize Christianity in our nation, I think we need what I would call a benchmark. You know what a benchmark is. Uh, a benchmark is something that you can use as a way to judge quality or level uh, of something else, something similar. And so, Let's use the disciples of Jesus Christ as our benchmark, okay? Um, that's what we ought to be, you know, measuring ourselves to. And it's very appropriate because when you really look at the picture of the disciples in the Scripture, you're going to find that uh, they were like us. They were, had sin in their life. They were stupid sometimes. Um, they were clueless. Didn't that fit some of us? And yet, because they had sold out lock, stock, and barrel to Jesus Christ, they began to grow and to develop and to come, become people that uh, the Scripture tells us turn the world upside down. And so they sort of uh, become our benchmark. Let's begin by looking in Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. They're in your notes, and it's here on the screen as well. Luke writing says this, he says, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, 
Jesus began to speak first to his disciple, his disciples. Now, here's a picture. There are thousands of people who are following Jesus, and in that crowd of thousands, there are really three distinct groups that are there. One are the critics. These would have been the Pharisees. They would have been the uh, scribes, the religious leaders, and they seem to be always present. Every time you see a story of Jesus teaching, somewhere in the background are these critics. They're looking for Jesus to mess up. They're looking for a way to eliminate him from society. And so the critics are there. And then you've got the curious. This would have been the masses who were there. And they want to be healed. They want some free food. And they want, uh, you know, political uh, overturn of the Roman government. And that's what they're after. And then you have the called or, or the committed. And depending on where you're reading in the gospel records, there are 12, there are 70, there are 120, there are 500. So these are the ones who are called, the, the, the real committed ones. And they have attached themselves to Jesus, and they're going to follow him for a period of two-plus years, okay? Uh, the noted scholar A.B. Bruce put out a classic book years ago called The Training of the Twelve. And in that book, he talked about the fact that there are three phases or three stages of the calling of Jesus Christ to these men to be his disciples. And so we're going to look at the first two of those today, and then next week we'll look at the, the third stage. And then I want to propose next week to add a fourth stage, and, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. But the very first stage, these men are what we call simply believers in the Christ, that is, that Jesus is the Messiah. And they were Jesus' uh, occasional companions for certain events. And this is a period that probably lasts four or five months. And uh, during that, you know, they accompanied him, for instance, to the, the wedding at, the, at Cana, where Jesus turned the, the water into wine. So this is a four or five month period. It's the come and see stage where they come and they're just checking Jesus out. Uh, and it's found primarily in the Gospel of John, chapters 1 through 4. Um, and here he is, Jesus is introducing a group of disciples to himself and to his mission in the world. Uh, and during this time, most of these disciples followed Jesus as the opportunity presented itself. I mean, they sandwiched time with Jesus in between their occupation and their family life and followed him as they could. This was a time of really an initial relationship building. Uh, here in, in John chapter 1 through 4, uh, he's talking about primarily Jesus building relationship with Peter and Andrew and John and Philip and Nathaniel. And they were coming to know Jesus, coming to know his character, his servanthood, his mission. Over in John chapter 1 and verse 35, uh, it says this. It says, again, the next day, John, and this is talking about John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. Now, catch that. John had disciples. John was a rabbi. He had those who were following him. It says, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked. And that word means to fix his gaze to gain insight into what a person is all about. So he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Now, obviously, by saying that, 
What they're saying is we don't want just a casual conversation standing on the side of the road. We want a lengthy conversation. We want to know more about you. Where are you staying so that we can come and visit you? And look what Jesus said in verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. Some of the translations say, come and see. And so this is the first phase. Come and see. This is the information gathering, the investigation phase. These disciples at this point are only making a light commitment. They just want to check Jesus out. Uh, a few verses later, John is going to record a conversation between Philip and, and Nathaniel. And Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see for yourself. And in chapter 4 of John, uh, we find the, the, the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well. <clears throat> and she goes running back to the village people and she shouts to them, come and see a man who to told me everything that I had ever done. And so this is the come and see, the check him out, look him over, learn about him kind of phase. Some of you are at that point in your life. You're just coming and you're seeing. You're just checking Jesus out. You're, you're, you're kind of saying, okay, what is this all about? Is this something I want to be a part of? You're in that come and see stage. Some of you got friends, coworkers, family members who are at the come and see stage in their life. They're just beginning to check Jesus out and see if this is something they want to be a part of. But then there's the second phase, and that shifted after about four or five months to uh, what uh, Bruce calls um, the come and follow phase. That's phase two. And it lasted about 10 to 11 months or so. And during this time, of course, Jesus is being followed by thousands, and yet routinely he is teaching and training 70, 120, something like that. And of these, Matthew and Mark have recorded the specific calling of just a, a handful of these. So look in Mark, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18. Matthew 4 and verse 18, it says, One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Now, these two brothers have been mentioned back in, in John chapter 1 as part of that phase, the come and see phase. Get to know me, check me out kind of phase. And it was no doubt during this first phase that these brothers, as well as James and, and John also, um, they had listened to Jesus teach, had been with Jesus occasionally, but also had worked their trade of fishing. As they, you know, and so we're back and forth, spending time with Jesus, going back to their occupation of fishing. And I think it was during these days that these men began to contemplate all that they had heard and all that they had seen during these four or five months of, of being with Jesus periodically. One of the things that they do did come to realize is that their association with Jesus had changed their life. I mean, they would never be the same. And so now here is Jesus calling them again. And this time, he's wanting them to spend more and more time with him throughout the, the remainder of his earthly ministry. And so in verse 19, Jesus called out to them and he said, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Now that verb follow there means to follow as a disciple. It's to literally walk in the footprints and the dust of, your, of a rabbi. 
It's to learn from him. It's to watch him. It's to, to experience what he experienced. It's to imitate him, to do the things that he did, to think the thoughts that, that he thought, to meet the needs of people like he did. It means to, to learn to pray like he did, to teach like he did, to have the same compassion for people as he did, and yes, even to suffer as he suffered. That's what these two brothers were signing up for. And, and if you notice there in that verse, it says, they left at once, at once. I mean, there was no hesitancy. They didn't hedge their bets at all. They cast their, themselves wholeheartedly into Jesus' camp to follow him. Uh, and the results, <clears throat> folks, would radically change their life. And they, in turn, would radically change their world. And you know what? That's what God's up to today. God wants to change us. And then he wants to use us to change our world. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Go on there in Matthew chapter 4 and beginning at verse 21. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. <clears throat> and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Folks, there was no holding back. There was no looking back. There was no going back. I mean, these guys, you know, the die had been cast, and they weren't going to change their minds. They weren't going to change their heart. Now, granted, I don't think they understood all that following would involve. Um, and again, remember, if, from, based on last week, these were not the prize students of the day. Remember, only the best students, uh, you know, moved on or advanced from Beth Sefer, which was that elementary school. And the others went back home to, to learn the family trade, the family business. Only the best of the best, after they went to that secondary school, then attached themselves to a rabbi uh, or to a, a master teacher. So here are these men, and um, they're not the best of the best, and Jesus is calling them. I mean, how do we know they're not the best? Because they were in the family business. They were fishing. They didn't, they didn't make, you know, the, the honor roll to be able to advance to another, another level. But here's the key thing. Jesus deliberately chose illiterate, unskilled, and un untutored uh, fishermen and tax collectors and revolutionaries and so forth. Why? So that the amazing grace of God might be even more apparent in their lives. As one early Christian writer stated, he says, Jesus sees them not physically but spiritually, and he chooses them not as the apostles but because they could become apostles. So these guys are our benchmark to understand what it really means to follow Jesus. So let's talk for a minute. What, is it, what does it really mean to follow? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? And to do that, let me ask, answer this question. Why? Do we follow Jesus? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do we follow Jesus? Let me, let me throw out some thoughts to you. First of all, it's not because it's going to give you respectability. It's not because, you know, it's going to give you a good reputation in the community. It's not so that you can add it to your resume, although I've seen people's resume and they've got their church membership right on there, you know. That's not why we follow Jesus. It's not because it helps you raise good kids, although it will. It's not because it can ease that guilty conscience so you can say, yeah, I did my church thing this week. That's not why we follow Jesus. And folks, 
It's not even so that you can make it to heaven when you die. The real reason that you follow Jesus is love. Is love. We follow him because he loved us so much that he died for us. And, and folks, if you're having difficulty following Jesus, check your love. Check your love for him. And I know people will say, well, you know, my problem is I just don't love God enough. That's not your problem. Your problem is you don't realize how much God loves you. If you could ever grasp the love that God has for you, you would never again have a problem loving him. In fact, John's going to tell us later in his epistle, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. That's why we follow Jesus. He loved us and we respond in love. Now look at this decision that Peter and Andrew and James and John are making. They have made a total commitment. It says they left all and followed him. Following is a total commitment. That, that's the key thing here. One of the other things you see, and now, you know, Pastor Ashley has been preaching through the book of Acts, and, uh, and if you go all the way back to last year when you all were in Acts chapter 2, one of the things you saw was a re unique, remarkable thing in the history of the church. On the day of Pentecost, there were all these people who had, from all over the Mediterranean world, North Africa, all the way around to, to Italy and, and so forth, and they had made their way to Jerusalem to, to be a part of the festival or the Feast of Pentecost. And one of the things that happened was that they became so excited about following Jesus that they never went home. I mean, they just said, we're going to stay here. We want to be a part of this church. We want to know more about this following Jesus Christ. And they never went home. I mean, think about it. If you went off to a Bible conference and you got so excited about following Jesus and learning the Bible, and so you called up your boss and said, hey, I'm, I'm not coming back to work. And by the way, would you sell my home? And yeah, you can give away the dog. That'll be all right. You know, I'm not coming home. That's the kind of commitment they made. It was a total, total commitment. That's what it means to follow Jesus. So what is it that keeps us from following? Because uh, all of us say, man, I want to follow Jesus. But then there are things that happen in our life that keep us from following Jesus. It's interesting in, in Luke chapter 9, the gospel writer records three different men who were called to follow Jesus. And, and in their excuse not to follow Jesus, are some barriers and i want to talk about how do we avoid those barriers of following the number one barrier is the barrier of security the barrier of security look in in luke chapter 9 and beginning at verse 57 <clears throat> it says as they were walking along someone said to jesus i will follow you wherever you go but jesus replied foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests but the son of man has no place even to lay his head. Here's, here's an example of somebody who didn't count the cost. And, and he was unwilling, I think, to give up the security of the present. I mean, he thinks that he is eager to follow Jesus Christ. But the bottom line is, he didn't even have an idea what following Jesus Christ was all about. And so Jesus, in his answer, showed this, this uh, would-be disciple 
what life with him would really be like. I mean, the man hadn't paid attention to the fact that Jesus talked about suffering, about a cost to pay, uh, and all that was involved in that, about the hardship that's found in, in following. Folks, salvation is free, but following is costly. And you and I need to realize that. It's going to cost us something. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, that Lutheran, German Lutheran pastor who was uh, hung as, as part of treason against the Nazi regime and all that, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, talks about what he calls cheap grace. Cheap grace, how, you know, we have salvation, but we're not willing to pay the cost of the continued following and the continued spiritual growth. Well, here's Jesus in Luke chapter 9, and he's talking about that, the fact that we've got to avoid cheap grace. He says this, uh, Then Jesus said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Folks, a cross is an instrument of suffering. So there is a high cost to pay for following. And I think for a lot of people, they come to Jesus Christ and they never consider the cost that's involved. And they want to hold on to the security of the present. Or they, they, they won't let go of the past and things in the past. And uh, therefore, they can't make any progress. Uh, you know, even after they've heard the call of Jesus Christ to be their disciple, they still want to hold on to their selfish ways. They, they're not willing to pay the cost. You see, walking with Jesus Christ, uh, the, the life of following Jesus Christ is kind of like that trapeze artist. If you've ever watched them at the circus, one of the things that has to happen is, as they soar out through, the, through space, they've got to let go of one trapeze before they can grab that second trapeze. They're not, and if they don't let go, disaster ensues. And the truth of the matter is that in our Christian walk, there comes a point when you've got to let go of something so you can grasp the next thing, so you can, uh, so you can push on through. And frankly, if, if coming to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior um, hasn't cost you something, I'm wondering about the depth of your following. Go back there in verse 23 of Luke chapter 9 and just underline those words there in your, in your notes. Turn from your selfish ways. See, when a person hears the call of Jesus Christ, there's got to be a cutting off from the old life, uh, you know, the, the previous existence. The call to follow produces a new situation. Uh, what did Paul tell us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? That the old is gone, the new has come. And so we're talking about transformation. We're talking about change in our life. We're talking about repentance, turning from one way of life and facing in a different direction and going toward a new kind of life. And yet how many people, how many of us, when we come to Jesus Christ, we never get rid of all of the old, way, old life, the old things of, of our old life, our old selfish ways. Still have some lying going on there. There's still some dis dishonesty. We still find ourselves occasionally cheating people. Um, our language hasn't changed. We're still, you know, slipping and catching glimpses of pornography. Um, Christians who are engaged in sexual promiscuity, uh, Christian singles living together and they call themselves Christian. We're hiding our addictions. You see, if anyone is in Christ, they're to be a new creation. 
all of us need to change. All of us need transforming. And so I'm always asking the question, what about the change? How is my life different because I've come to Jesus Christ? That's what happens when I come to Christ. Your life has changed. And if the change isn't there, well, I wonder. I wonder. So this first guy wants the glory of following, but folks, he isn't willing to, to pay the, the cost of following. He wasn't ready to, be on, to move beyond the security of his present life. And so to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be continually changing to reflect Jesus Christ in, in our lives. The second barrier that we can come up against is the barrier of substitutes. The barrier of substitutes. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus continues this narrative. Uh, and it says, he said to another person, come, follow me. The man agreed. But he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Now, notice immediately, and this is, this is a freebie, okay? This is just extra, okay? Notice that immediately following means that there's a duty that's given to anyone who would follow. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. That is, we're to share the good news of salvation with uh, everybody. Witnessing is not optional. It's a part of following. But let's consider this second would-be disciple. Jesus told him, come and follow me. And I think this guy misunderstood as well. I mean, he agreed to follow, but he really failed to understand what following was all about. Um, and so... And, and I think he also forgot, uh, failed to understand the urgency of the situation. Look at his answer. He says, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. So what's going on here? Um, some people hold, some Bible scholars say, that if his father had been a corpse at home, laid out for the wake or whatever, the man probably would not have been with Jesus at all. Because he would be home dealing with all the details of, of, the, of the funeral and so forth. Thus, his request is really an attempt, let me stay at home until my father is dead, and then I will follow you. In other words, what he's attempting to do is he's attempting to delay in obeying. And let me, let me tell you that delayed obedience in reality is disobedience. We're going to obey immediately. But what if the father is dead? Well, then the words of Jesus really have even more intimacy or immediacy because uh, the Jews considered proper burial as the most important duty that anybody could do. It was more important. It took precedent over, um, you know, any kind of temple service or studying the law or offering the Passover sacrifice or uh, going through the, the observance of circumcision or any other ceremonial obligation of Judaism. And so what Jesus is trying to make plain here is that the demands of the kingdom of God are even more urgent than the regulations and the rituals and the rules of Judaism. And here's the message for us as well. See, following Jesus as his disciple is not adhering to rules and regulations. Um, it's not, you know, don't do this, don't do that kind of thing. It's not going through the motions of rituals or or following regulations. 
And unfortunately, that's a popular con uh, concept or picture of what Christianity is all about. You know, you don't do this, you don't do that. Uh, you, you know, you don't, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go with the girls that do, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, that's not what Christianity is all about. It's not rules and regulations and, and rituals, but rather it is a relationship with Jesus Christ where every day you're growing more and more intimate in knowing him and living for him and, and, and you're more like Jesus Christ in your thinking and your talking and, and in your acting. So this second would-be follower was really shackled by the rules of his religion. And so instead of, of the freedom that Jesus wanted to give him, he went away saddened because he was enslaved to the ritualistic religion uh, that would never bring fulfillment in his life. And so here's the paradox of following Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. When we become a slave to Jesus Christ, when we make him our Savior, our Lord, our Master, the boss of our life, we find ultimate freedom in life. But if we reject slavery to Jesus Christ, we lose our freedom. And we find ourselves bound to sin and its mastery over us. Jesus said to those who would follow him, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. There's a third barrier here. Not only is following Jesus not adhering to rules and regulations, carrying out you know, a whole bunch of rituals, but there's also the barrier of self-preference. Self-preference. Go on there in Luke chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 61. He says, another said to him, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. So did you hear what this third would-be disciple said? He says, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first. In other words, he wanted to follow all right, but he wanted to do it on his terms, in his way. I'm at your disposal, Jesus, but... At the same time, I want to kind of hold back my right to change the rules whenever I want to do that. Uh, does that sound familiar? I think we all find ourselves in there. We negotiate with God saying, yeah, I'll do this, but, and here's my, here's my plan. Folks, that's not discipleship. That's just a, a simple program where we have a, a, you know, a design that to suit our own needs. And if we're going to heed the call to follow Jesus Christ, our personal preferences, our likes and our dislikes, they don't come into play at all. It's what Jesus wants, not what we want. And so in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, listen to what Jesus said. He said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life, that is, want to have it my way, you know, I want to dictate the terms. He said, that person will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Folks, you can't truly follow Jesus Christ on your own terms. Because if you do that, guess what? You're in charge. And if you're in charge, what are you doing? You're playing God. And that's one thing that God will not tolerate. He has said, I will not share my glory with another. There can only be one God in our lives. So don't try to follow Jesus Christ on your own terms. It just doesn't work. So think about it. Which of these barriers 
keeps you from following wholeheartedly with Jesus Christ? Is it that self-preference that I want it my way? Or is it um, the, the, the issue of sacrifice, I'm not willing to pay the cost? Or, or maybe it's that, that other thing of substitutes. I'm doing, I'm thinking of, of, you know, all these activities that I can do in lieu of really following Jesus Christ. Get rid of those things in your life. Let's close by looking real quickly at the calling of Matthew. Go back to Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. <clears throat> After that, Jesus went out, and he noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he left everything behind, and he got up and he began to follow him. Underline those words, left everything, got up and began to follow, got up and began to follow. Um, there's a word for that, for Matthew's response here, and that's the word obedience, obedience. Go to Webster's Dictionary, and here's the definition. It's the state or act of being submissive to the will of another. Now, in that definition, the state or act of being submissive to the will of another, there are two distinct things that are found there. First, there's the idea of an external authority that we submit to, and that's Jesus. You know, God the Son, the Son of God. We submit to his will. What does he want? Not what I want to do, not my will, but what is his will? It's interesting in the Lord's Prayer, there's this, this phrase, you know, we pray it and we say, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever thought what you're saying when you're praying that? What you're saying is, I want your will done on earth in the very same way it's done in heaven. So how is God's will done in heaven? Well, it's done instantly. It's done completely. It's done joyfully. It's done wholeheartedly. And so what I'm saying is I want to follow God's will and he's revealed something to me. I'm going to obey instantly. I'm going to obey wholeheartedly. I'm going to obey joyfully. I'm going to obey completely. That's what it means to be obedient. The second implication here is that obedience isn't just an action. It's also a state. It's an inner attitude. Uh, those of you who are parents, you know that children can obey and disobey at the same time, right? You know, there's an outward obedience, but on the inside, they're just disobeying you all the way around, you know. There's an inner attitude. They're not far from the way we are sometimes, are we? You know, oh, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it, but I don't like doing it. We're so quick to say that we, we love Jesus Christ, but where's our obedience? Look what Jesus said in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will be obedient to me. We're so quick to proclaim our trust in God. It's even on our money, okay? But look what God's word says in Isaiah 26, 8. Lord, we show our trust in you by what? Obeying your laws. Obedience is so important. And we're so quick to proclaim our faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we tell a person they need to do to, to be saved? Put your faith in Christ. But God's word says this in James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? See, faith is only real in obedience. Faith is only real in obedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Only he who believes is obedient, 
and only he who is obedient believes. In other words, faith and obedience have to go together. Obedience is possible only where there's faith. Uh, obedience follows faith just like good fruit comes from a, uh, from a good tree. So there's first faith and then there's obedience, trust and obey. And faith always leads to action, to obedience. And so for Peter and Andrew and James and John, um, it meant leaving everything behind as fishermen and following Jesus Christ. For Matthew, it meant leaving his occupation as a tax gatherer and all the wealth that he could have acquired and following Jesus. See, faith is a step-by-step -step following. We believe, we trust, and because of our belief, we take the very next step. What's the next step I need to take? Faith is always stepping forward to follow. It's letting go of the first trapeze and grabbing on the second and then the third. It's a step-by-step -step process. Peter, because he had faith, he stepped out of the boat to walk on water like Jesus was walking on water. I mean, think about it. Peter says, I'm your disciple, and I want to be like my rabbi, and I want to do the things my rabbi is doing. And so here's Jesus walking on the water, and Peter said, let me walk on the water as well. And, uh, you know, he, he saw the storm, he saw the waves, he lost faith, and he, and he started to sink. And, and sometimes we chastise Peter, oh, his lack of faith. You know, he couldn't walk on water. Let me tell you who didn't have faith. There were 11 guys who never got out of the boat. But Peter got out of the boat. At least he tried. And, and, you know, if you say you have faith in Jesus Christ, you've got to get out of the boat and follow him. You've got to take the next step. That's what it means to follow, to be obedient. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, said, and this is a word to all of us. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. So what is your next step? Where do you need to get out of the boat? Where do you need to let go of one trapeze and grab the next trapeze? What is it in your life that needs to be your next step? For some of you, it might be something as simple as starting to tithe your income to the church. Others of you, it might be saying, hey, I want to volunteer and I want to go on a short-term mission trip and, and let God use me in a different place. Maybe for you, the next step is get up 15 minutes early every morning this week to spend time in prayer and in Bible study. What's the next step that you need to take? Maybe it's to start to share your faith with your coworkers. But there is a next step. Folks, get out of the boat, let go of the first trapeze, and take a step in faith. That's what following Jesus Christ really means.